I thank the witness for her testimony. The chair will now recognize members for five minutes for questions, and I will begin. Um, Ms. Alcuri, your testimony, in your testimony, you stated that Congress should conduct oversight to ensure that tribes and tribal organizations, specifically tribal epidemiology centers, have access to public health information at the same level as state and local health departments. Could you further expand on that and give examples of the barriers that exist for data sharing right now? Yes, to you. I think, um, you know, prior to becoming the chairwoman, I actually worked with where Ms. Church works right now at the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Health Board. I was the administrator for the Northern Plains Epidemiology Center at that time. And one of the things that we, and this is way back in 2010, we were asking for data sharing then from the state and also, I know, it's, it's, a, it's we're here 2023, we just went through a pandemic, we don't know if we're gonna go through another one and we're still asking that question, why are we not sharing data and as a tribal chairwoman now, I can say this, it's not the only agency that we struggle with that. At the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it's the same thing. And I don't mean to throw that in there, but I mean, this is something that we need to get past. We cannot adequately address all our needs at the tribe, even as decision makers and these ladies here at the health boards in addressing our healthcare needs without collecting the data and sharing the information so we can tell our story to you and you can tell the story adequately also. So the epidemiology, the data is so important. We just, we just need to get past that. Ms. Church, you seem to have some experience with this same problem. Yes. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, I, recently, we, we, you know, I shared COVID, what happened during COVID-19. Um, and not having that information uh, made it so that we couldn't prioritize which of our 17 reservations that we were going to support for emergency operations. We, we operated a, a regional emergency operations center. Um, and I believe because of that, people died unnecessarily. We could have done more if we were at the right place at the right time. And we didn't know where to be. Um, at the right place at the right time. Right now, with the syphilis outbreak, um, we reached out to CDC, we reached out to IHS uh, for um, information. We reached out to CDC for an EPI-AID. They're in the process now of, of responding to that request for an EPI-AID, but I still don't know where to tell them to go first. And, um, IHS has, I think, 10 days to respond with an answer. The acting area director in Aberdeen responded when I followed up on day 10 uh, for information on the outbreak. His response was, we are still looking into the legality of sharing that information. Okay, all right. Um, I'd like to direct my next question to Laura Platero. Since Portland area has both tribally run, tribally run and IHS run health facilities, can you discuss some of the differences you've seen between management styles 
And do you think facilities are learning from each other about what are best practices and how to ensure culturally competent health care for your tribal members? Thank you, Chair Hageman. In terms of management styles, I would say that tribally operated facilities have more decision-making authority, and this results in more timely decisions. For example, they're able to purchase equipment supplies that they need without having to get approval at the area level. <coughs> uh, similarly, staff training, they can make those decisions locally rather than have to go to the area to get approval for those. For hiring, it also can take months for a federal facility to get someone hired. By the time the person gets through the process, they may not be available. In terms of the tribal facilities, of course, they have that flexibility to expedite hiring when there is a need. There's also funding flexibilities for tribal, tribally operated facilities in terms of moving funding uh, across sub-accounts. So if someone would like to direct some healthcare funds to their behavioral health program or their mental health program, they can move those funds. Uh, uh, federal facilities are unable to do this. So there's just a lack of flexibility overall. And we've heard from some of our communities, even with presence in the community, many individuals who work at the federally operated facilities may not necessarily be integrated into the community or be part of social events. And it does, I think it does matter to have a presence like at events locally in the community. And I'm sure that's not the case for all places, but I heard that from one tribe. Also PRC eligibility for federally operated facilities. We've heard there are a lot of delays. There's penalties to members who get billed for services. Um, this has been extremely burdensome. We heard of one incidence where it resulted in someone not getting care and they ended up passing. So, and that uh, tribe did, um, I'd rather not give their name, but I'm happy to share that later with the committee and connect you with the okay. tribe. They did want to talk with you. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I am now going to recognize uh, the ranking member, uh, Ms. Ledger Fernandez, for your questioning. Thank you so much, Chair, and I want to really thank the witnesses because what's really key is, I think one of you said it, is that making sure that the voices that you represent are heard by us so we can raise our voices in support of what you are doing. And I really want to thank you from, you know, the heartbreaking thought of uh, babies uh, dying because we don't get them the care they need with regards to this uh, congenital syphilis to the idea that somebody, if you're a Native American, you might not make it to see the social security. These are, these are really impactful uh, stories that paint the picture. Um, and uh, I, I, I wanna touch a bit on the advanced appropriations, mandatory appropriations. Uh, and I know that you've each testified you'd like to see both. Um, and, but I really am pleased that we at least got to the advanced appropriations for IHS last year on a bipartisan basis. Um, so once again, let me just here do, uh, Ms. Rosette, would you support advanced appropriations for IHS on a permanent basis? Yes. Uh, Ms. Church? Yes. Uh, Ms. Platero? Yes. And then I don't, uh, uh, Ms. Alquide? Yes. <laughs> um, and Ms. Alquide, I really, uh, hopefully we might have time for a second round of questions because I do want to hear uh, the story about cultural competency. And, and I think the important piece that I have witnessed over the years is that the, um, that 
uh, tribally wound organizations, either compacted or contracted, are able to, to blend in cultural competency much better. Uh, but you've also pointed out that IHS, some of the IHS facilities also have that, and the study about following, uh, getting better, right, when you have trust in your doctor. Do you see that um, using uh, traditional healing practices also helps in terms of following the Western uh, uh, prescriptions as well? Just a, a quick, uh, maybe uh, Miss Church, if you want to answer that. Sure, absolutely. When our relatives feel comfortable in a healthcare facility that speaks to who they are and their culture, they trust even the Western physicians even more because they see those physicians respecting their culture. They see them respecting their spirituality. Um, and the care that's provided by the, the quality of the care provided by the physicians also changes because mm -hmm. they're exposed to culture and they're aware that this is an important piece of that, of that relative's healing journey. Thank you. And I think that uh, the other thing I've seen is that uh, 638 compacted contracting facilities also do a great job of recruiting Native American providers into them. Um, I wanted to follow up real quickly on the issue of give me, if each of you can give me one example of how having advanced appropriations has helped. Uh, Ms. Rosette. Well, before um, we were having problems with, um, we couldn't plan ahead as what what it, how it has helped. This is like with our new building. Before, we couldn't plan for things like that because we weren't sure if we were gonna have the funding. Now we, can, we know, at least for a while, that we will have the funding there for us and we don't have to use what money we have saved to, for operations. Right, uncertainty, when there is uncertainty, everything costs more. Uh, Ms. Platero, quickly. Same thing, uh, certainty in funding, being able to plan security with providers, knowing they'll have continued employment. Ms. Church. Um, being able to use those resources more effectively and uh, with confidence. Yeah, and Ms. Alquide. I'm sorry if I said it. Alquide. I, I know, that's, that's like okay. I went to that. Okay. I'm from New Mexico, so my, my apologies for the mispronunciation. Oh, no, I, th I think the ladies all stated very well. That it, it does come down to planning. It does come down to not feeling the, the uncertainty of what's going to happen next. I mean, our people... We have a lot of issues in regards to trusting systems in the first place. Mm -hmm. And when we have these issues with IHS, whether they can pay for something or not pay for it, or, or the funding ends, as we used to say early, the first, second quarter, they just can't help you, that, that's, that's, that's devastating, actually. Right. It's just devastating for thank, our people. Thank you. And uh, on, on two things, because I'm coming near the end of my time, is uh, uh, what I like to say is here in Congress, we are your WD-40. So when you run into those problems with regards to data sharing, which is legally required, reach out to us. We will push uh, to the extent we can. It might, we can't guarantee anything, but we can be, uh, we can get our big can of WD-40. You know, I have a lifetime support that comes in every week uh, because there's so many things we have to push on. So remember to do that. And I do intend to address the, the diabetes because it is a big issue. So we will be addressing uh, the reauthorization. I will, I will take that up. And I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Thank you so much, uh, Madam Chair.
Thank you. Uh, the chair now recognizes member Radawagon for five minutes of questioning. Talo Falava. Thank you, Chairwoman Hageman and Ranking Member Ledger Fernandez for holding this hearing today. And thank you to the uh, panel for your testimony. Uh, Indian Health Service direct service facilities have faced significant medical staffing challenges, and currently there's a scarcity of people entering the medical profession, uh, leading to staffing shortages throughout the healthcare system. So in, in each of your opinions, what are the current workforce challenges unique to the IHS system? And has IHS provided any recent initiatives to support the tribal healthcare system's unique staffing needs? Ms. Alkire? I love that question, actually, um, because it, I, can, I can answer it in two ways. Definitely, we need more healthcare professionals. I come from a community, um, it's rural. The, the, I think where we talk about additional funding for Indian Health Service, it would be, they have a hard time recruiting, I think because a lot of times we're asking these professionals to come to my community or our, our communities that are very rural. We have one store, one gas station, and you want someone that probably is gonna make a couple hundred thousand out here to come to where we live and, and a lot of times they don't have, the housing that was built in our community, I told you our hospital's 60 years old, the housing is probably about that too. So you're asking them to come there. So I think that's a big deterrent in regards to funding. The other part is I have a niece that went to school to be an occupational therapist. She took advantage of the IHS scholarship. Unfortunately, when she graduated school and she wanted to come work for her people and work for us, the um, IHS told her she could either go to Alaska or Arizona so to pay it back. And she was willing to pay it back. The problem, and this is probably comes down to that flexibility thing, she did go to Arizona, but eventually, because we are, we are who we are, and these ladies know, we go back home. We'll, we'll, so she came back to North Dakota, and now she's paying back her scholarship. And unfortunately, she's not an occupational therapist anymore because it's discouraging. And so, but she's got to get another job to pay that back. It's just a long story. I think if IHS could work on that, that would help with recruitment. But I think it all comes down to additional funds and resources for the organization to help with that recruiting effort, to bring those people in, because I think it's gonna be tough ask to bring them into our community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My time is almost out. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, I had hoped to hear briefly from Ms. Church, Ms. Platero, and Ms. Rosette. But Ms. Church? Yeah, so the systems that IHS have in place for recruitment and onboarding are, are very um, slow. So. We have a, a young physician that works for us right now, and I asked her about her experience, and what she said was she couldn't even get people to answer the phone and follow up to her application. So she ended up going to the IHS facility, walking in and asking for um, the, the status of her, of her application. The, I don't know if it's because they're understaffed, but they, um, they need to 
improve their systems so that people don't have to knock on their doors to work for them. Again, antiquated facilities, low pay, um, rural environments are, are not um, attractive to a lot of our providers. Ms. Platero, I think Ms. Uh, Rosette is gonna have to submit it for the record. Thank you. Another issue uh, besides what Ms. Church stated is also housing. There's a lack of housing. Uh, many, and also many providers don't wanna move to rural areas. In addition, I think if a provider finds out that they may have a caseload of 900 patients, we have one facility that currently with their uh, shortage in staffing, they have a caseload of 900 patients per provider. And also, uh, there's no, which is really important, there's no same day care at many of uh, the facilities just because they don't have the capacity given the limited number of providers that are available. Thank you. Ms. Rosette? Oh. <laughs> we don't really have the same problem on, in, the, in our facility at um, Spokane because we're in the, in, we're in the um, city. So as far as recruiting providers and um, employees, it's not been that big of an issue because we do. But on the other side of it, we if IHS, um, it seems like they are understaffed and so it takes us longer to get our contracts and everything like that. So that's been our our side of it is not necessarily on our, our, our own physicians, but on getting contracts from IHS. Thank you very much. It's very important information. And I often visit uh, Indian reservations when I'm moving around in the States. Thank you. Madam Chairwoman. Thank you. Uh, very important testimony, and it's one of the reasons why I really wish that the representative from IHS would have been here today. I think that that would have been uh, important information for them to hear. I come from a rural area in Wyoming, grew up outside of a town of about 300 people. Our closest city was about 4,000 people, and it was 25 miles away. So when there was an injury or something, uh, there definitely, I, I, I can relate to the fact that of getting to healthcare and accessing healthcare, and uh, appreciate your comments, and hopefully we can get the IHS to address some of these. Um, with that, I will recognize Representative Salban for his five minutes of questioning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Um, good morning to our witnesses. Um, in, uh, in about three years, uh, IHS will be celebrating 50 years of its existence, I would say. Um, and uh, we still have some of the things you're bringing up today, you know, the problems maybe. So, oh, no problem, certainly. Uh, but each one of you seem to, or some of you seem to hint at the need for additional resources or funding or things for your communities, for Native Americans. Um, do you agree funding would help? Because, yeah, because while we do oversight here, the cardinals are in another room somewhere. Those are the people who need to hear this. And uh, look, 
with all the best of intentions, and we can't, no one can provide everything. But this thing didn't start 47 years ago, this inequity. It started at first contact with non-Native Americans a long time ago. But, uh, you know, we need to work and continue to get it better as much as we can. And I want to thank all of you for your testimony. And at this time, I yield my time to uh, Ms. Fernandez, Ledger Fernandez. Thank you so much, Mr. Sublan. I do want to take a little moment of personal privilege and note that all of our witnesses, the chair and the ranking member, are all women. Not to mention anything, I know you, you're brilliant, uh, uh, Mr. Sablan and Mr. LaMalta, but you know, that's, that doesn't happen. It didn't used to happen, and now it happens with a great frequency. And so, will we solve, we'll fix everything. We can fix everything, right? We can get that done. Um, so, uh, one of the things that I wanted, <laughs> one of the things, one of the things I wanted to touch on briefly is, uh, thank you, Mr. Sabal. It made me think about the budget issues, right? Because we're going to go into a budget. I mentioned on a on a macro basis what would happen if we would cut back funding to 22 levels for IHS. And as we look at the budget, like where are those needs the greatest, and where should we not cut back? Can you tell me what would happen if if there would be, let's say, a modest um, 15, you know, not a mass, that would be huge, but a 10% cut, uh, a 10 to 20% cut on what your budgets would be. What would that look like at the local level? I gave you the macro. Uh, so, uh, and it would, it would hit everybody, right, from, from urban to, um, to uh, Lakota. So can you show, share with us quickly? Uh, I have about an, a minute left on that. Uh, let's start with... We want to start in the urban area, or Mr. You, I got to put those glasses on so I can read again. <laughs> Which one was that? Which in turn would then help PRC because we'd have those services in house instead of sending them out. Um, it would um, also uh, impact our ability to. Um, um, to provide some of the pre preventative work that we do. We really take our public health seriously because that is the first step in making sure that chronic disease doesn't happen in the, in the first place. Ms. Rosette? Yes, um, at our facility, probably a lot of UIOs, we would probably end up having to um, reduce our staffing at some, and that's, like you was mentioned earlier, we don't have, we get half of the we spend half as much on our individuals as as the national average. So taking ten percent more would take us even down further, and and it's we can't we we need our providers in Spokane alone. We gained about ten thousand additional American Indian Alaska Natives between twenty ten and twenty twenty. So reducing that would just put a greater burden on the problem. Ms. Plattetter, for our area. We don't have an IHS or tribally operated hospital, so for us it would result in reduced purchase and referred care, which would mean less specialty care and the ability or the lack thereof to be able to provide for high, um, higher levels of priority. So as it is, we're already um, filling uh, medical inflation and less funding, and to have a cut of 10% would be drastic okay. to the Northwest. Ms. Alkai, I, I'm sorry that I have run out of time, but 
Um, you know, I would I would welcome if, if if you would like to submit, if anybody would like to submit written testimony in response to what would that mean at your level? Because it, it is it is we, you painted some of the big broad stripes. What does that mean in terms of you know the 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 baby who won't get prenatal care, the the mother who won't get preventative, so that we, she has a healthy baby. If you can just kind of describe what that would look like, I think that would be very powerful so, uh, as we look at it. Thank you very much. Um, the chair now recognizes Mr. Lamalfa for his five minutes of questioning. Thank you, Madam Chair. I also share your disappointment with the uh, IHS uh, not sending representation today as the. Uh, Interaction is extremely important here, but uh, maybe maybe another round. Uh, so thank you, panelists, for your time and for travel to get here all the way to D.C. Um, let me a um, couple couple questions. I want to follow up on facilities, and I think um, uh, Ms. Platero, um, you you represent since it's Northwest Portland. Is that, is that considered for IHS purposes urban? No, um, we represent the 43 tribes of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Yeah, yeah. Our, so our office is based in Portland. But yeah, none, none of your work is in the urban area then, okay. No, it's not. All right, thanks for your clarifying, clarifying that. Um, my understanding is that there's difficulty sometimes within the, the way um, IHS administers the dollars for facilities to uh, um, get the funding allocated. Um, I, I understand it's an urban problem, but, but as well for uh, rural facilities as well, that uh, the, for uh, facilities, maintenance, equipment, et cetera, uh, that uh, they're not able to use that um, general IHS budget for that. Is that, uh, is that something that uh, I see you nodding your head too, but Ms. Patero, then we'll come to, uh, um, that's correct. For, Pardon? That's correct for the Portland area. For healthcare facilities construction, we haven't received, or our tribal facilities haven't received funding in over 15 years for- and It's ineligible? Is it, is it somehow ineligible according to- There is a great need for facility construction. Mm -hmm. So the wait list is very long. There's a priority system that currently exists so that our tribes basically have to pay for their own facilities with their own funds. But I, I guess more zeroing in on it is, is some, are some of those funds, you're just flat ineligible because of the way IHS categorizes them? Or is it more just There's the just not enough funds. There's not enough, it's, okay. It's significantly Ro underfunded for Okay, thank you. Ms. Rosette, you're, uh, you're uh, nodding too. Yes. Like it. Okay, you <laughs> wish to. Yes, urban Indian organizations are only included within IHS's budget through the there's an urban Indian line item. Um, we do not receive direct funds from most of the other distinct IHS line items, such as hospitals and clinics, Indian health professionals, or facilities. So yes, we only are eligible under the urban Indian health um, line item and are not do not have access and are not eligible for any kind of facilities funding. Okay, Miss um, Church. Uh, I was referring back to some information going back to the Dorgan report of 2010 and some of the issues they had brought up with IHS um, in that report, which are, I guess, pretty shocking. You know, some, some of the things listed are missing or stolen narcotics as well as uh, 
not not strong pharmaceutical audits, uh, backlogs and billings and claims and um, uh, discouraging the employees there from communicating with us as overseers in Congress, and very you know personnel issues, et cetera, et cetera. So, so since uh, 2010, when that report came out, re you know, uh, reviewing things pre 2010, what what do you see as uh, improved in that area with IHS's performance in within? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the beginning, Indian Health Service responded the best they could. They came in and they started to work with the facilities in the Great Plains and many of the direct service units um, are now accredited, but they have not been able to sustain that level of activity and quality assurance in order to, 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 to keep it there. So um, without additional funding, I imagine that it won't be long until they're back to the same place they were before. Um, so oh, yeah. a, a tick of improvement, but then quickly falling off, you think? Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it, 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 it takes a great deal of, it takes resources and it takes um, human capital to. And retention must be very difficult as we're talking about with rural, whether it's Indian healthcare or in general rural healthcare, which I face in a very rural district, uh, 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 you know, with many tribes and, um, you know, in town, small town healthcare, it's a very, very tough to get and retain people there. So the time is already eclipsed, Madam Chair. I'll yield back and hope for a second round, perhaps. Why don't we go for a, a second round of questions? I have a couple of questions that I wanted to ask, uh, specifically to Ms. Church. Um, you state in your in your statement you mentioned the lack of, of staffing at uh, Great Plains IHS facilities, and that you think improvements in recruiting and retention will not only improve care but eventually be cost effective. Could you further expand on that and what recruitment and retention initiatives you have found to be useful and effective? At um, what we believe at Oyate Health Center, I can speak from the tribal mm -hmm. tribal perspective, is that we have to grow our own. So we run a health facility, but we also run what I call a learning facility. We create opportunities within every area of Oyate Health Center to um, foster um, additional training for our current employees, and we want to become a learning center for for programs, whether it is phlebotomy or um, our, our next goal is residency. Um, if you're recruiting your, if you're fostering your own community and your own staff, they're more likely to stay. And the, the commitment is there, not because they have a IHS payback, but because they believe in the mission. Okay, and uh, I just wanted to ask Ms. Platero, yeah, um, in, in terms, uh, actually, uh, uh, Ms. Rosettes, do all of the uh, urban areas in the United States have Indian health care services that they provide? Um, there's some of them, and there's um, 
any medical care. There's um, outreach and referral. There's limited ambulatory, and then there's full ambulatory. So there's three different types of services they can provide, and then so in some form, yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, I will then uh, go ahead and and uh, uh, turn to. Uh, the ranking member, Ms. Leisure Fernandez, for her supplemental questions. Thank you, and I love the fact that many of my supplemental questions were asked by my colleagues on this panel, so we are clearly all on the same wavelength as wanting to make sure that things get better uh, uh, in Indian country, and that's why I love this committee, because it is so bipartisan, recognizing that we have problems and recognizing that we will find solutions for them. Um, I wanted to quickly ask, uh, uh, the panelists a bit about the data sharing, um, you know, so give us a little context. Uh, and and Ms. Church, I think you spoke the most about it, uh, about the agency practices that need to be changed uh, uh, to be able to facilitate better communications. And Ms. Rosette, if, if, if you see that something isn't answered with the guardian IOUs, that'd be great, Ms. Church. and see the health boards and the epicenters as a resource for them. If we're partnering together, we're in the communities. Mm -hmm. um, if the state goes to one of our reservations to address syphilis, the people there are not going to talk to them. They're not going to trust them. We'll work with our own tribal leaders and our own tribal health directors to identify those, those folks that need to be uh, brought to treatment. Um, by working together, IHS is going to be more successful as well. I don't understand the issue with not wanting to share data when it's so clearly stated in statute. It, I never understood, and it's been a long, long battle. Thank you very much. And did you want to add anything to that, Ms. Rosette, regarding the urban Indian yes, just organizations? Yes, just that a lot of us, several of us are not on the IHS's um, RPMS system. So we have other off-the-shelf um, EHR systems and our data. It's hard to get our data to them with the antiquated system that they have. And, and when we do send data to IHS, it's often um, it's often recorded wrong or something. It's always there's always a problem with our numbers. I think if we got if we had some formal system EHR system where we could talk to each other and, and uh, share our data easily, that would that would be very helpful. Thank you, and I know uh, uh, former chair and now ranking member Grijalva had a bill that dealt with part of encouraging uh, more collaboration between the urban health units, and this is another piece of that that definitely, but the frustration is it's already in statute, right? Mm -hmm. but, but the need that came up last cycle that we discussed was the need for there to be seen as partners in this. Your, your, your statement yep. is so accurate. Uh, and Ms. Alcart, <laughs> share with us the culturally uh, relevant story you wanted. Thank you. I, I'd love to. I, I talk about this story because um, it talks about identity. It talks about um, definitely about our culture. I, I, you talked about the facilities. I'm trying to get us a new medical facility. I know not, IHS is not going to pay for it. I know as a tribal chairwoman, I'm having to try to think innovate, innovatively to look at ways to get this hospital built for our people. But I am hoping, and as you said, that IHS is going to staff this for us. So 
I'm very hopeful no matter what. But the story I wanted to share with you all is the grandma story. And, and this is about, um, we call it uh, Makaga, I can't even say it now. Makagina, um, Makagina, Makagina. And basically what it is is to touch the earth. I'm, my passion is to have our babies born on Standing Rock. In the Great Plains, there's only one unit, one hospital that delivers babies yet, and that is on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The rest of them don't. We all became clinics. Now our babies, like I said, are born in these places far away. But Makagana basically means is that when our babies are born and when the mother, when her water breaks, um, how our ancestors did it, that was the ground, that was the place that that baby would be tied to. I feel, and I don't know where this come from, but I feel in my heart that this is also a big break in who we are as a people, that our people are born in these communities that they're not related to culturally, and these ceremonies can't be done because now I feel like our babies will be lost again. They start right at the beginning and the way we did it was we take the baby and we touch them to the earth of the ground where the water was broken so they are tied to, um, to, the, to the earth. And I say this, I have to use this example. Um, we see now the geese flying north. That's because they're going back to where their babies are born. Turtles travel thousands of miles to go back to where they belong. Us as a people, I feel I want our babies born on Standing Rock so our kids don't, it's gonna be hard already. I want them to feel like this is where they belong. They will never be lost. Thank you, that's a beautiful mm -hmm. story. My time has expired, I yield back. Thank you. Uh, the chair now recognizes Ms. Radwagon for additional questioning. Thank you, Chairwoman Hageman. <clears throat> Several testimonies mention traditional healing practices and that further integration of those practices would be useful for healthcare delivery to Native peoples. So I wanted to give each of you the opportunity to expand on that, particularly how those practices have been beneficial to tribal members and how IHS could encourage use of them in both direct service and tribally run health programs. Ms. Church? Sure. How we are approaching um, integrating traditional healers, teachers um, at Oyate Health Center is we've, we're developing a cultural advisory board. We I've, have a, identified um, knowledge keepers across the region, and they, they guide us um, on how to do that appropriately. It, it's very sensitive because our in our tradition, our, our traditional healers don't ask for money. They don't say, this is my fee, right? So we have to look at innovative ways to support them and to find ways to, um, to have those ceremonies appropriately, but still um, uh, integrate them with the work that's being done in the, in the clinical setting. So they help us to, um, they tell us what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Some of the ceremonies, they say, it's not appropriate to do it at the health center, but send them to, you know, to this healer or to that healer. Um, 
a lot of our physicians and even some of our own tribal members uh, may not have grown up with those traditions. So there's a longing for, for knowledge. And when we are advocating for people to take care of themselves, if we're incorporating those teachings that they may not have heard before or, or maybe their parents or grandparents, they come, they show up. They show up for their appointments, they show up for um, education, health education, and, um, and they show up for ceremony. And families are strengthened and their spirits are strengthened. Ms. Botero. Thank you. Uh, traditional healing practices are definitely part of the holistic approach to care. You can't have healing without addressing the spiritual aspect of a person. Um, similar to what Ms. Church said, our people will show up to appointments, events that are focused on a cultural practice event, whether it's a healer or an activity. For our tribal clinics and tribes, they've been asking for traditional healing practices to be reimbursed um, under Medicaid and Medicare. This is one way that would allow for continuity of these services so that when there is some kind of cost involved or paying a healer, there's the ability to pay that person and keep the service going, thus improving holistic health care for uh, people in our communities. Ms. Elkaya. Um, I, I agree with the ladies, basically. I don't want to take up too much time. I feel like I ramble on, but I, I wanted to tell traditional. We have, during COVID, we have a lot of our people did not take the immunization because they don't believe in it so that we have to rely on our traditional healers and they do. So I think, I think it all comes down to communication. IHS needs to hear, hear that and, and, and definitely I'll allow these things to happen. I think we can all get there though. <laughs> Thank you. Ms. Rosette. Healing within their own uh, facilities. We have not yet implemented that into our UIO because, <laughs> because um, we, we don't have the space for it right now. We also don't have a, um, there's not like a, you can't, it's hard to do a job description for a traditional healer to hire somebody. So we, it has to be somebody that's willing to do that work for you. So it's it, in our facility, that's what we're, we want to find somebody that is known as a healer, but we, 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 it's hard to find that type of person that wants to do that in a, a facility like ours. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. I yield back. Thank you. And now for the uh, last set of questions, the chair recognizes Mr. LaMolfa. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, <laughs> keeping it uh, compact, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, I, I want to ask um, our panel here about uh, uh, mobile health clinics and obviously most most tribes face the the rural issues, the rural challenges, and so mobile clinics uh, could be a very and probably are. And that's what I want to hear from you: is that how how important are they to to the far flung rural tribes that we have uh, that have a chance to utilize those? Uh, and uh, what are the um, what are the issues with them or with having more of them? Is, and is there any regulations that are 
that you see that are standing in the way of their further expansion. And well, I'll stop there and maybe ask a second question on that. So are, are they something that tribes wish to use more so? Is there something stopping them from, from doing so? Uh, Ms. Alcairo, I'll start with you. I'll be honest, I haven't seen very many of them lately. <laughs> I used to see mobile health clinic, mobile units come for women's clinics. Um, and I don't know if IHS resources um, have gotten scarce, so I don't see them. And we do you do wish for more of them? Do you yes. think that, okay, that, you're not I mean, seeing them? That would them? be helpful for, because I come, the reservation I come from is 2.3 million acres. It straddles both the North and South Dakota, and a lot of our communities are, they're far apart from one another. And our, our one medical facility is on the North Dakota side, and so it takes a long time for them okay. to get I, to those I want to get to the other panelists, but yeah, go ahead. you don't see it enough. Do you understand, is there any barriers by IHS stopping them from happening? I think the barriers are just lack of resources. They okay. just don't have the money to have them. Okay, Let's, thank you. Let's uh, keep moving. So, uh, uh, Ms. Church. Budget and you need to prioritize inpatient and uh, or ambulatory care and choose between um, a new program with mobile uh, mobile units. You're you're going to focus on um, your internal service. Your brick and mortar. Yeah, and so you're not aware of uh, IHS barriers or any regulation against having them. It's more funding, probably again. Exactly. Okay, Ms. Platero, what do you think? I'm not aware of any barriers. I would say that a way to increase uh, providers in rural areas is the community health aid program expansion. That is a way to grow your own and have more providers in rural areas. Okay, Ms. Rosette, what do you think? I'm in an urban area, so the mobile band is not really an issue there, but transportation is. So, so even though we have a bus system, many at IHS, there's no barrier though from IHS for us to have a mobile van, so. Okay. Funding, probably. All right. Yeah. Um, let me ask all the panelists. Uh, we got two minutes. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about the delivery of, of health care via an in-house IHS system versus a tribal-operated, uh, you know, that the, the tribe runs itself instead of under IHS's umbrella? How, how well is IHS delivering the product versus when the tribe has more self-control over it? Sure. Um, okay. Rapid City Service Unit was one of those facilities that um, CMS, where they lost their um, accreditation um, or certification, and um, they were not able to provide the level of care that the community needed. Since Oyate Health Center was established, they have we have so much more flexibility on every level. We hire people faster. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, we get to hold people accountable. If they're and not- And IHS working, isn't doing that when they're operating it, is that- is It's that, very hard for them to hold people accountable because yeah. of the federal um, HR yeah, laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing is we, we, can, we, can, we can foster people to be grow professionally, and we can hold people accountable okay. who are not doing their jobs. Okay, thank you. Ms. Platero? Self-governance tribes or tribes that run their own health programs 
are able to make decisions as to funding, like moving funding through sub-accounts from uh, sub uh, clinical or healthcare to behavioral health. I mean, they can make those on-site decisions to improve healthcare. Okay, Ms. Rosette. It's non-applicable in the urban setting. Okay, all right, well, <laughs> bottom line in here is uh, you would like uh, the funding challenges and uh, more flexibility come from within the tribe than uh, 2,000 miles away. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Well, my own experience is that one day I was uh, in district and all of a sudden had a tooth problem and was able to pop into a clinic, uh, a tribal clinic, where I knew the folks and such and been working with them and they fixed me up in no time and it was really great. So at least getting me where I could get to my dentist and do the longer term work. So I, uh, I, I liked that experience. So Madam Chair, thank you, I yield back. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank the witnesses for the valuable testimony that you have provided today, and again for your willingness to travel to Washington, D.C., so that we can hear directly from you. I also want to thank the members for your questions and your willingness to engage on this incredibly important subject. The members of the committee may have some additional questions for the witnesses, and we will ask you to respond to those in writing. Under Committee Rule 3, members of the committee must submit questions to the committee clerk by 5 p.m. on Monday, April 3rd, 2023. The hearing record will be held open for 10 business days for these responses. And if there is no further business, without objection, the committee stands adjourned. Thank you, Madam.